Warning, this episode contains the death of a child. Listener discretion is advised. Hey y'all, this is May, and I want to welcome you to Crimes of a Decade, a Texas true crime podcast. I drop a new episode every other week discussing murders from different decades. This season, going over cases from 1990 through 1999. I also have a Patreon that has episodes drop on my off weeks where you can enjoy more Texas content. This is one way you could help support me and my show. Or I have a link where you can buy me a coffee. However, there is a free option that is actually really helpful to me and my podcast. To go and rate and review my podcast on Apple Podcasts. Some have already left a review, and it means so much to me. It also helps my show get noticed by more people. I really enjoy creating this podcast, and for all who listen, any support is greatly appreciated. Now on to today's story, which is of a male murderer from 1995. So grab you some Whataburger and open that Dr. Pepper. Let's go back in time to Texas true crime. In 1995, there was a domestic terrorist bomb attack on the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building in downtown Oklahoma City, known as the Oklahoma City Bombing. It was carried out by Timothy McVeigh and Terry Nichols. The plan for this tragedy started in 1993 when McVeigh went to Waco during the Waco siege and decided to bomb a federal building as a response to the raids and planned for the attack to be on April 19, 1995, to coincide with the anniversary of the Waco siege. The bombing killed 168 and injured more than 680. That same year, Ken Sarawiwa, writer and human rights activist, was executed in Nigeria despite worldwide pleas for clemency. His execution provoked international outrage and resulted in Nigeria's suspension from the Commonwealth of Nations for over three years. Another thing that happened in 1995 was a man who was financially desperate and made a disastrous choice. Please join me in walking down Erie Lane. Anyone remember the phrase, stranger danger? I remember being told this as a child. It was made known that you do not talk to strangers. It was a short and simple phrase for kids to remember to help keep them safe. And although many articles state that the history of this phrase started in 1963 by the Austin, Minnesota Police Department, I found that it was actually first mentioned in an article from 1958, but by the same police department. The article was about a safety film produced by the Austin police called Mr. Stranger Danger. A preview of the film was shown in 1958 at the Vocational School Auditorium to teachers, school officials, 
PTA representatives, city officials, and members of the Mower County Health Board, whom, all after watching it, were enthusiastic about the promise of the film. After this, the plan was to show the film to many more PTA groups and get it approved to show in schools to children as a permanent part of the curriculum. By 1963, Mr. Stranger Danger, the villain in the film, was known throughout school districts. The character was created by Robert Baumgart, head of the juvenile division for the Austin, Minnesota Police Department, in an effort to educate children in the dangers of child molesting. Since its creation in 1958, the film strip had been shown to all Austin elementary schools in Austin, Minnesota. The film was initially shown only to 3rd, 4th, and 5th graders, but when there was an increase in concern over molesting after two small Minneapolis girls had been abducted, sexually assaulted, and killed, the film began being shown to 1st and 2nd graders, and even sometimes shown to kindergartners. Police Chief Robert Nelson explained in an interview that We've had more molestings reported since we've been showing this movie, but I think it's because the kids are more aware that such actions are wrong. In the past, when a child was made to do something he recognized as naughty, he wouldn't tell anyone because he knew his mother and father wouldn't like it, and the molester would tell him to keep it secret. Now the kids report such incidents often to their teachers. He also praised the film that came out of his department, saying that the outstanding feature of the film is that it has avoided the effect more people fear will result from such indoctrination, unreasonable fright and distrust in the child. Because in this film, they just mention the subject and skip on to something else such as not playing with matches, not hiding in refrigerators, not wading in deep water, and not playing with strange dogs, using analogies that are easier for a younger audience to understand. The article explained that nowhere in the film is there any suggestion of what Mr. Stranger Danger might do to the child. I searched for this film and even reached out to the Austin, Minnesota Police Department, but was unable to get a hold of the film strip. Stranger Danger was a good first start in helping kids learn about safety, but research has shown that only about 5% of abductions are committed by strangers, and so kids were not afraid of going with people they knew, which research shows most abductions are done by a family member or friend of the family. The new data shows that parents should talk to their children about abduction prevention but to not focus on warning them about certain types of people and instead teach them to identify and respond to threatening situations. Examples of this include Don't say, never talk to strangers. Do say, you should not approach just anyone. If you need help, look for a uniformed police officer, a store clerk with a name tag, or a parent with children. Don't say, Stay away from people you don't know. Do say, it's important for you to get permission before going anywhere with anyone. Don't say, you can tell someone is bad just by looking at them. Do say, 
Pay attention to what people do. Tell me right away if anyone asks you to keep a secret, makes you feel uncomfortable, or tries to get you to go somewhere with them. National Center for Missing and Exploited Children gave a review that revealed an important fact. 83% of children who escaped their would-be abductors did something proactive. They walked, ran away, yelled, kicked, or pulled away. Showing that the best thing a child can do if someone tries to abduct them is to take action instead of being passive or polite. They also gave information to help parents set up a safety plan for their kids and a reminder to not forget to include their teens in these conversations. Examples given to parents were to point out places they can go for help when walking places like school and the park, remind them to travel and stay with a group, warn them about accepting rides or changing plans without your permission, Teach them the tricks would-be abductors use, such as offering money or asking for help. Encourage them to tell a trusted adult whenever anything or anyone makes them uncomfortable. They also offered up scenarios to help parents practice with their children, such as the offer trick when a child is offered something desirable like candy, money, toys, or ride. The animal trick is when a cute or interesting animal is used to get the child to follow or enter a vehicle or home. The emergency trick, someone fakes an emergency and offers to take the child to another location. The help trick, the child is asked to help with something such as directions, looking for a lost pet, or carrying something. The friend trick, a person tells the child he or she has been sent by the child's parent. Sometimes the person actually does know the parent. The bad child trick. Someone accuses the child of doing something wrong and says the child must go with him or her. The flattery model trick. Someone compliments the child and asks to take his or her picture. The person may promise the child fame or fortune. The best thing for all these tricks is to tell children to always get their parents' permission no matter what any adult asks of them, and to have the child practice saying, I can't go with you until I check with my mom, dad, or teacher in a firm voice and walk away. To teach children to always check with their parents or the adult in charge before going anywhere with anyone, and to instruct children to immediately tell you if someone approaches them or tries to take them away. There's one other trick predators will try to use called the open the door trick when someone tries to get the child to answer the door when the parents aren't home. Parents should tell their children they should never answer the door for anyone if they are not home. Sadly, in the case I'm about to discuss, the parents knew of stranger danger but had no idea they should even have to warn their child about protections against people their child knew. This is how the tragic death of 12-year-old Samuel McKay Everett happened. On September 12, 1995, 
in Conroe, Texas, 12-year-old Samuel McKay Everett stayed home alone while his parents attended an Amway meeting with their family friend, Hilton Crawford, known to the boy as Uncle Hilty. Crawford called the Everett home twice that night, the last being at 5 p.m., to make sure Paulette and her husband, Carl, still planned to attend the 8 o'clock p.m. meeting. The Everts arrived at the meeting, but Crawford never did. He instead showed up at the Everts' home around 8.30 p.m., knocked on the door, and got McKay to open the door and convince the boy to get in the car with his Uncle Hilty. A half hour after this happened, McKay's parents finished at the meeting and decided to go out to eat with their friends. Carl Everett, McKay's father, made several phone calls to their house that went unanswered. Starting to get concerned, Everett left his wife at the restaurant and made the 10-minute drive home to check on his son. When he got home, he noticed that the door to his home was open, but there didn't seem to have been a struggle. As soon as Mr. Everett walked into his home, the phone rang. A woman's voice was on the other end of the line and told Everett, We got your son, and demanded $500,000 and $100 bills for his safe return, then warned him not to call the police, and said he would receive another phone call in the morning. But that second phone call never came. After the call ended, Everett dialed 911, then contacted his wife and finally called their good friend, Hilton Crawford, because he had prior experience in law enforcement. Crawford, however, did not pick up. When police arrived, the Everts described their son as 5'1 and 101 pounds with brown hair and blue eyes. And when they left the house, he had been wearing a black t-shirt. Bill Kahn, a neighbor across the street, came to the house when he saw the police and told them that he was placing his garbage cans at the end of his driveway and saw a car pull into the driveway of the Everts' home. As he walked back to his own house, he heard no sounds out of the ordinary and never saw any indications of a disturbance. When he walked back to the foot of his driveway with more trash, he noticed the same car pull quickly out of the driveway and drive off. Khan was able to identify the color, make, and model of the car, a brown or gold Chrysler, and remembered the car had a sticker and emblem that read Crown Motors affixed to the car's back end. And although there was no significant physical evidence, Khan's description of the car led the police and FBI to focus on Hilton Crawford. His car was identical to the one Khan described. When inspecting his car, investigators noticed the car had been thoroughly cleaned both inside and out. The cloth lining in the trunk had been removed, and there were indications that part of a Crown Motor sticker had recently been removed. Based on these observations, the agents confiscated Crawford's car. And after closer inspection, bloodstains and blood splatter patterns were discovered inside the trunk and on the exterior near the car's back bumper. 
This blood was conclusively determined to belong to the 12-year-old boy. The pattern of blood splatters indicated that McKay had received at least two significant blows while inside the trunk of the car. But no body had been found, and the police continued searching, hoping the boy to still be alive. Next, investigators focused in on tracking down Crawford's movements on the night of the abduction. They were able to do this through cell phone records and gasoline and hotel receipts, finding that Crawford traveled extensively in East Texas on that night, ending up in a Beaumont motel, where he checked into a room at 4.30 a.m. The police and FBI agents determined that Crawford had contacted several employees of the security company he helped manage and tried to enlist their cooperation to fabricate an alibi. Investigators tracked Crawford's movements the day after the abduction and found he had visited a friend, Billy Allen, and that through trickery, Crawford had convinced Allen to help him clean the blood from his car, remove and dispose of the trunk's lining, and hold on to various items, including a blood-stained 45 caliber handgun. Based on Crawford's cell phone records, the FBI noticed Crawford had made three calls on the night of the abduction to a woman named Irene Flores. The information she gave police provided the probable cause necessary to obtain a warrant for Crawford's arrest. 56-year-old Hilton Crawford was arrested on the morning of September 15, 1995, for aggravated kidnapping. It was believed by investigators that the boy was kidnapped in a scheme to erase Crawford's mounting debt. He and his wife had filed for bankruptcy that last spring with some $300,000 in debts. The next day, while in jail, and after talking with his attorney and wife, Crawford agreed to help draw a map that led authorities to McKay's body in an area known as Whiskey Bay, Louisiana. Crawford also provided a detailed account of his version of the kidnapping and murder, telling searchers they would be able to find two bullet casings, two slugs, and an unspent bullet at the body site. But Crawford also told investigators that he was not the murderer. He admitted to kidnapping the boy, but that it was instigated and ultimately committed by a man he knew as R.L. Remington. McKay Everett's body was found, dumped off a highway near Baton Rouge, Louisiana, 250 miles from his home on September 18, 1995, around 2 a.m. off of Interstate 10 in Iberville Parish. And due to the extensive decomposition, disagreements arose as to the exact cause of death. But they did agree that death resulted from either a gunshot wound to the head or blunt force trauma, or a combination of both. McKay was shot twice and beaten before his body was discarded near a Louisiana swamp. Neither of the large caliber bullet wounds appeared to have been at close range. According to the medical examiner's report, the first bullet ripped through his lung, heart, and abdomen. The second entered into the back of his skull and exited the right temple. Also arrested was 52-year-old Irene Flores, who had worked with Crawford at the security company 
She was arrested on September 16th as being the woman suspected of making the ransom call to the Everett's on the night of the kidnapping. She was charged with aggravated kidnapping, but could possibly face a murder charge. The police also started looking for this third suspect that Crawford said was the trigger man. Crawford began a law enforcement career with the Beaumont Police Department in 1961, then moved to the Jefferson County Sheriff's Department in 1966. He resigned as a captain in 1975 to run against Sheriff Dick Culberson, but he lost by 3,000 votes. From 1975 to 1977, Crawford worked for the state as an investigator for the Texas Board of Private Investigators and Private Security Agencies. In the mid-1980s, he was a partner in a Conroe restaurant, Izzo's, which ended up failing, and by the late 1980s, he left a job at Pinkerton to start his own security company, Security Guard Services, which he sold to Keller for reasons he wouldn't disclose. Then he became a $60,000 a year district manager for Keller, supervising 125 employees. Crawford enjoyed gambling on horses and other sporting events as well. Hilton and Connie Crawford moved from Beaumont to Conroe sometime after he left the Jefferson County Sheriff's Department in 1975. The Everts and Crawford's lives crossed regularly and the couples had been friends years before McKay was born, as both wives had taught together at B.B. Rice Elementary. After McKay's birth, he lovingly had referred to Hilton as Uncle Hilty. The Crawfords lived in the modest South Conroe subdivision of Rivershire and had two sons together. Carl Everett, the builder, constructed a few of the homes in that neighborhood had one of the streets just blocks north of where the Crawfords lived, named after his son. It was called McKay Park. Hilton Crawford sold Amway products and had gotten Mrs. Everett involved in the company, which was a meeting both Hilton and the Everett were supposed to attend on the night of the kidnapping. On September 21st, 1995, both Crawford and Flores were charged with murder to go along with their kidnapping charge. The felony abduction, together with the murder charge, would constitute a capital murder offense that could result in life in prison or the death penalty. Connie Crawford was devastated by her husband's actions, and after his arrest, she took leave from her teaching job and went into seclusion. In February 1996, with so much publicity around the case, the trial was moved to Huntsville, Texas. 
During this time, defense attorney McMurray had asked the court to take Judge Edwards off of this case because the judge had signed a search warrant that netted items authorities believed to contain traces of McKay's blood. This request, however, was denied. But her request to be taken off the case because Crawford could not pay her was granted. So defense attorney Rick Stover was appointed to Crawford, pushing the trial back two weeks and was ready to start in July 1996. Assistant District Attorney Nancy Neff opened the trial by stating, This case is a botched attempt to extort money from a boy's parents. This case is about a child's trust and betrayal of that trust. This case is about the ultimate betrayal. The evidence will show Samuel McKay Everett is dead because he trusted someone he knew. At trial, Paulette Everett, mother of McKay, was the first witness called by the prosecution to testify. On the stand, Paulette showed the jury a picture of her son McKay that was taken the day before he was kidnapped. In the picture, the boy was wearing a green t-shirt, light blue denim shorts, and black athletic shoes, with a backpack slung over his shoulder. In the picture, he was standing in front of the same door that Uncle Hilty would knock on the next evening. She told them, That's my baby. And that her son would have never allowed a stranger into the house and would not have disarmed the home burglar alarm unless he knew whoever was at the door. I told him he needed to lock the door and turn on the alarm. Next, Paulette described to the jury her last day with her boy, how she had picked him up from school, fixed him dinner, and helped him with his schoolwork. And that on that night, when McKay didn't answer the phone, she told the jury, It was not normal for McKay to not answer the phone. I was puzzled. And when I got home, my son was gone. Karen Domini, an employee of Crawford's, testified that Crawford told her he would give her a raise if she gave him an alibi. Crawford said to say he was checking on guards in Jasper and Lufkin on that night and called her four times in the days after the kidnapping to ask if investigators had called. After the FBI called to question Karen, she agreed to let agents tape record a telephone call with Crawford. Part of that conversation was played in court. Karen, I'm nervous, Hilton. I don't know what to say. Hilton, well, I keep telling you what to say. Billy Allen also testified for the prosecution. He was the friend who helped Crawford remove blood and a blood-stained trunk liner because Crawford asked him to. He told the jury that Crawford had told him the blood came from a security guard who was wounded while using Crawford's gun and had rode in the trunk so his blood wouldn't stain the seats. Allen said he helped remove the trunk liner and scrub away blood stains on September 13th, a day after the kidnapping, but that he called authorities after hearing news reports about the missing boy. 
When FBI agent Lloyd Diaz took the stand, Paulette had an outburst and began to hyperventilate, and she began screaming in court after hearing disturbing testimony about damage discovered and weather stripping inside the trunk of Crawford's car that appeared to have been caused by somebody trying to escape from the trunk. Paulette was removed from the court and the judge cleared the courtroom and admonished the jury to disregard the outburst. He also denied the mistrial request made by the defense and the trial resumed. But Paulette did not return, stating she would only return if she was called to testify again. As the FBI agent continued in his testimony, it was revealed that tests on the remaining traces of blood in the trunk of Crawford's car were consistent with those of McKay. Ballistics test also showed bullets fired from the gun were used in the boy's killing. During the trial, when defense attorney Rick Stover would cross-examine the witnesses, he would suggest that someone other than his client had killed the boy. But the judge was not having this and warned Stover that he would be fined or jailed if he again suggested in open court that someone other than his client killed the boy. The jurors had to watch two videos during the trial a video of when the police found the boy's body, and more than 90 minutes of Crawford's videotaped confession, with a caveat that the jury believe only part of the story, saying that Crawford not only kidnapped the boy, but pulled the trigger, even though Crawford maintained he only kidnapped the boy but didn't kill him, stating in the confession that a Louisiana man named R.L. Remington was the killer whom he had met months earlier at a Louisiana racetrack. Crawford said Remington pitched the abduction plot to him after learning he was having financial troubles. The jury heard Crawford say on the tape, He told me about how you you could take, kidnap somebody, and make $100,000 to get those people back safely. But police testified this man, Remington, was a figment of Crawford's imagination. That they exhausted all possible leads that an accomplice was responsible for McKay's death. Siebe J. Heron, an acquaintance of Crawford's, testified that Crawford approached him at Sam Houston Race Park in Houston with a plan to kidnap the boy, stating, He said, all I'd have to do is babysit a kid. Heron turned down his request and noted that the police sketch drawn from Crawford's description of Remington resembled him. The prosecution did nine days of testimony before resting. The defense rested without calling any witnesses. It took the jurors 62 minutes to find Hilton Crawford guilty. During the sentencing phase, an insurance agent was called to testify and on the stand, he told of Crawford filing a claim and receiving payment for jewelry and a car he said had been stolen. But the jewelry was found at Crawford's home, and the car had been taken by Crawford to a friend's storage yard for safekeeping and found there. Among other witnesses was a convicted felon, James Gaffney, serving 19 months for a marijuana possession, and said Crawford gave him a gun 
and a murder-for-hire plot in which a former business partner was the intended victim. The $100 deal, however, never materialized. He wanted me to kill him. He wanted me to shoot him. And it was revealed that Crawford had accumulated $75,000 in debts over a four-month period on 13 credit cards that he obtained in his son, Kevin Crawford's name. After two hours and 20 minutes, the jury sentenced Hilton Crawford to death on July 24, 1996. After the verdict was read, Paulette walked to the stand and made this statement. McKay was the light of my life. The love and relationship we enjoyed was wonderful. Every day was special with McKay. He made me feel like Cinderella. I have faith knowing my son is safe now. I'll have to go to him. He can't come to me. His life was cut short due to hate, greed, and jealousy of Hilton Crawford. The first public comments from Hilton Crawford after trial was on July 31, 1996. From death row, Crawford began the interviews by reading for about 10 minutes from a handwritten statement in which he expressed love for his wife and children. He also complained that news coverage of his trial included no mention of his years of helping poor families, coaching athletic teams, and raising money for charities. He read from his handwritten statement that All I ask you to do is point to some of the good things. I'm very sorry. I've cried. I've cried for the Everett family. I've cried for my family. My mind was not there that night. I am so sorry. I know sorry does not bring back McKay. I ask for forgiveness. I pray one day I'll be able to talk to you. Later in the interviews, he stated, I was sorry the boy died, as my participation in the kidnap scheme involving a mystery accomplice was the result of financial pressures and health problems. I've sat up in my cell many nights and cried. That wasn't me. If I could bring that one night back in my life, I could bring McKay back and save my whole family. I think, I think for what I did, I probably should be. I'm not a bad man. I made one terrible, terrible mistake in my life. I did not kill McKay Everett. I was there, but I did not kill McKay Everett. I am very, very sorry for being there. It was the bad sale of my security business in 1991 that led to my financial downfall, and I went into debt to keep paying security guards who worked for me. But at the same time, I decided not to scale back my own personal lifestyle, or deny purchases for my wife and family. The worst mistake I made, I think, was not sitting down and talking with my family. I thought I could overcome this, 
and blood pressure difficulties that led to dizziness and several blackouts contributed to my problems. When asked about McKay's final words, Crawford stated, There were no final words. I saw him in the trunk with blood. He was unconscious. And when reporters told him that most people considered his story about Remington to be ridiculous, Crawford explained, I understand that. Given my law enforcement background, it would have been stupid for me to leave such a trail that led police to me. If I was going to do it on my own, I knew East Texas like the back of my hand, and I wouldn't have had to go to Louisiana. If I had done it on my own, I would not have left a trail. In October 1997, Crawford's wife filed for divorce after 34 years of marriage and asked to have her name changed back to her maiden name. Irene Flores, who was on parole for a drug conviction when she placed the ransom call, was first charged with capital murder, but had her charges reduced to kidnapping. She pleaded no contest to kidnapping and received 25 years in prison in November 1997. Carl Everett addressed Flores in court, stating, Hilton killed McKay. Irene Flores can sit here today and plead no contest to a lesser charge, but she is just as guilty of killing McKay as Hilton. You took an active part in killing a child. You crossed over a boundary that you can never come back from. You are no good. The Everts also filed a civil action seeking an order to stop the Crawfords from pocketing the proceeds from the sale of their Conroe home fearing the money to be paid within a few days would be wasted. The request was part of a negligence and wrongful death suit that seeks from the Crawfords and Flores $62 million in actual damages and $100 million in punitive damages. I'm not sure what came of this civil suit. Paulette Everett created the Samuel McKay Everett Foundation which came about after the Everts received several anonymous donations when people heard of the ransom. But when McKay didn't come back home, she didn't have a way to return each dollar. So she created the foundation. Hilton Crawford was executed on July 2nd, 2003. I want to say a huge thank you to newspapers.com, clarkprosecutor.org, and all the other great resources that help me get all the information for this episode. I'll put a link to their work in the show notes. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Crimes of a Decade, a Texas true crime podcast. Next episode, I'll be detailing a female murder from the year 1996. If you're enjoying this podcast, Don't forget to subscribe to my Patreon to hear an episode from me every week. I would also love for you to hit the subscribe button and for you to rate and review my podcast on iTunes, as it really does help out. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to email me at crimesofadecade at gmail.com.